0: You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Louis Serrano, a public intellectual, science communicator, and AI educator. He is the author of Grokking Machine Learning and works as a research scientist in quantum artificial intelligence at Zapata Computing. Previously, he worked as a machine learning engineer at Google as a lead artificial intelligence educator at Apple, and as the head of content in artificial intelligence and data science at Udacity. Luis has a PhD in mathematics from the University of Michigan, a bachelor and master's in mathematics from the University of Waterloo, and worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Quebec at Montreal. Luis maintains a popular YouTube channel about machine learning with over 85,000 subscribers and over 4 million views, and is a frequent speaker at artificial intelligence and data science conferences. Welcome to Absolute AI, Luis. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Hi, Melody. Thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: I'd like to start off by hearing your biography in your own words. Tell me about your journey from representing Colombia as an international mathlete to artificial intelligence to quantum computing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been an interesting path. Yes, I was doing the math olympiads and that sort of gave me the idea to study math. I didn't really know you could do math for a living, but I was just I liked the subject, so I went in and and I started realizing finding out how you can do math for a living and it was sort of you become a the idea is to become a professor, so I did a PhD and then a postdoctoral fellowship. And the next step was becoming a math professor, but I started getting interested in other things. So at the time I was doing research and teaching at the university. Started getting interested in things that were more applied and I started getting interested in programming and things like that. And machine learning just popped in because it was just so, it's everywhere. So I started learning it and I thought, I feel like I I could do this for a living. I decided to try my luck on machine learning. So I ended up at Google and moved to San Francisco and I started working at Google I was in the YouTube recommendations team. That's where I learned a lot of machine learning and I was writing a lot of code, but I missed the teaching. So I, I was seeing if I could teach somewhere and that's where I discovered online education. So I moved to work at Udacity and I was teaching the online courses there. And, I, and that's where I really started really enjoying it. Uh, we taught a lot of courses. Then I moved to Apple to also teach. Internally, it was on, called Apple University, and you teach courses for the employees and stuff like that. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And I started with other projects. I get started writing the book, and I started writing doing the videos and on YouTube and things like that. And uh, I was very interested in quantum computing all the time. It was a thing that I was interested mm. to me, quantum physics in particular. But uh, the quantum algorithm stuff, and I had a friend who was always, always asking me questions and questions and questions. And one day he's like, you seem so curious about this. Why don't you come work with me? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're looking for a machine learning person. And uh, I, I said, oh, okay, well, that sounds interesting. And so I, I now moved to Toronto and I started working in quantum computing research. And I, I loved it. I've been learning a lot of new stuff and it's an interesting field, the way it goes with the way artificial intelligence, machine learning and quantum computing makes this is really interesting.
0: So that's at Zapata Computing, correct?
1: That's Zapata Computing, yeah.
0: Okay, so you've been there for about a year. And uh, you said already what kind of drew you to the company. Tell me about your role there and how machine learning and quantum computing are sort of coalescing.
1: So I work on the research team, but I also work in the marketing team, making educational content and talks and things like that. So I Still have my side of sort of popularizing things, and my goal is to popularize quantum computing to explain it in a way that is, uh, that is simple for everybody, like sort of what I've been doing with machine learning, that that everything can be simplified. So that's one of my goals. And, uh, the other one is on research. So we have a bunch of problems that we're working Some of them are come from the theoretical side, some of them come from industry problems. Uh, but the point of everything is to, Find quantum advantage and well, quantum supremacy is sort of where we're always after. So through machine learning, we think it's, uh, there, there's an avenue. So it's more like translating the algorithms. It's mostly there's the classical algorithms. And you want to see how would this work on a quantum computer? How would you make it better? How would you make it faster, et cetera?
0: Okay. So I know that you like to use metaphor. And so as I was doing some research, I found a quote that I thought was kind of cool to get us into talking about classical computing versus quantum computing. Because I know this is a, a new area for me and probably is for a lot of listeners as well. But Seth Lloyd in Programming the Universe wrote, a classical computation is like a solo voice, one line of pure tones succeeding each other. A quantum computation is like a symphony, many lines of tones interfering with one another. So what are some of those key differences? And do you like that metaphor? Does that work for you?
1: Yeah, that is a very good metaphor. Uh, Actually, I haven't heard it before. Because yes, a classical computer only works with bits that are one or zero. So you only have one piece of information all the time. Whereas a quantum computer works with qubits, which uh, kind of have the whole spectrum between zero and one. You can have a qubit at zero or at one or at half, half, but in many different ways or at 70%, one, 30%, zero, et, et cetera. And um, they do interfere with each other. And so sometimes things kind of add themselves or subtract themselves. I don't know if you've seen the experiment of the double slit. That's sort of the quintessential quantum yes. experiment.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I don't want to venture to uh, try to explain it. You go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yes, you have the double slit. So you have two slits and you shoot quantum particles. If you look at them, so things can behave as a wave or a particle. If things behave like a particle, it's like a little pebble. And if you throw pebbles, then you see two markers behind the slits, each, each one behind each one of the slits, because you just throw in pebbles. So either they hit the wall or they go through one of the slits and they will just make a marker on the back. Whereas if something behaves like a wave, then imagine that you're in the ocean or something and you're sending waves. And so the waves come in through the two slits, but they add with each other and you get sort of imagine two little Wi-Fi looking waves and then they intersect each other. And at some points they add and at some points they cancel out. And so what you see on the back wall is an interference patterns, right? You see some here, but some to the right and some to the left. You just see a bunch of, a bunch of lines being drawn where, where the wave is at highest and you see no way when they when it cancels out. And so they wanted to know if um, the electrons behave as particles or as waves. And what they do is they, they shoot them through the two slits. But if, if they're not looking at them, they behave like waves. So they draw an interference pattern. But if you start looking at them, they behave like particles. And so that's a pretty crazy experiment because nobody knows why, but it just, it just happens like that. And so a qubit uh, behaves like a wave. You have a wave um, equation for the qubit, which tells you in in what kind of superposition it is between zero and one. And when you operate with them, you can have them, things canceling out or adding. And so you can play with this wave uh, function. And so you can do a lot, a lot more things. It's pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah, I watched a video where you were explaining qubits and you talked about a light switch. Mm -hmm. That's what a bit would be, right? A zero or one on or off, like a light switch. And then you had this great graphic of a qubit, which is like a sphere, and it could be in any (laughs) sort of possible direction. I just loved that image of those two. And so we've talked about what a qubit is, but What does that mean for computing and how do you apply this weird thing in the universe that like it's in a different state when it's observed? How do you apply that to computation and to some problems that have like real world ramifications for clients?
1: Yeah, you have to be clever because in principle, you have all the information, right? Like imagine if you have a light switch and I want to transmit a message to you. I can only transmit a a one, a, a yes or a no. Two possibilities. And if I want four possibilities, I need two light switches. And if I want eight, I need three light switches. If I if I'm only if I'm if I'm turning on the lights of my house and I'm sending you a message and you're far away, I need more switches to send you more bits of information, right? Whereas if I were to have a slider switch, let's say you have a very powerful eye, and then if I were to do the lighter switch, I can send any number between zero and one by just putting it on high or, or low, right? So if I wanted to send to you the number 0.43259, I just put it on 0.43259. And if you're able to perceive that, then I can send any number to you. And in principle, I can send any information I want because I have decimals that can go as far as I want. So a bit can send a yes or a no, but a qubit could contain the entire internet, the entire Wikipedia, because you just encode it in a number, right? So what's the catch? Because it's not like one qubit can contain everything. The catch is that when you look at it, the qubit loses all that information and either goes as a one or as a zero. And the probabilities are given by that number. So imagine if like, when you look at the light, it either goes full up or full down it's not in the slider anymore. And, and the higher it is, the more likely it's to go up, but it could still go down and vice versa. So you lose a lot of information when you observe. But what you would do is you have to play with these qubits in a clever way so that the answer is given to you, or at least with a very high probability. So you can play with these qubits by rotating them. You can entangle them, which is something very weird that uh, sort of kind of knows, it's like one qubit knows where the other one is. So when you observe one, this one, the other one takes a particular, or it affects the probability of the second one. And so you can encode problems by playing with these qubits and make it in such a way that when you observe, sort of the answer doesn't get lost. So it, that's the clever part of the quantum algorithms. And and um, yeah, many times you can make things go faster. So you can do, for example, a linear search. If you're going to search among many, many options, let's say a hundred options you have to check all of them in a classical computer. In a quantum computer, you can do that in, you can play with the qubits so that in square root of a 100, you would be able to find what you were looking for with a high probability. Or you can also use uh, something called Shor's algorithm that helps you factor numbers. So factoring numbers is very hard for a classical computer. They take forever. If I give you a number of uh, thousands of digits, the classical computer may take a long time factoring it which is good for cryptography, right? Because that's how we make passwords secure. Right. Quantum computer can do this very quickly. Luckily, you know, there's no big quantum computers right now for for doing that. But in theory, if you have a quantum computer with enough qubits, you can factor numbers very quickly. And so there's just a lot of algorithms that fix bottlenecks in classical algorithms, normally with speed, but you could also have performance.
0: Another thing that you said was that Quantum computers are better at generating random things out of nowhere. Yeah, talk to me about that.
1: Absolutely. So here's my favorite, my favorite quantum supremacy experiment, which is not is is not, but it's a thought example. Uh, when you think of something that's really hard for classical computers, generating random numbers is is not just hard. It's 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 absolutely impossible for a classical computer to generate a random number. They're not random. They're they're everything in a computer is scripted is scripted. So you can generate pseudo-random numbers that behave very closely to how random numbers would behave so that you can do your experiments, but nothing is random. If I were to run the exact same calculation at the exact same time with the exact same conditions of the universe in, in a classical computer, I would get the exact same number. So that's not random. Whereas a quantum computer is a random generating number machine because you can Actually, the hello world of quantum programming would be generate a, a random bit. You can do it very easily by you know, rotating a qubit and then measuring it. And then that's like flipping a coin and it gives you truly random numbers. What does that mean? Well, there are areas of machine learning, like, for example, unsupervised learning, where it's just a a lot of it, It's it's generating random numbers from a distribution, right? You have to find the distribution and generate random numbers out of it or random vectors or things like that. And that's hard for classical computers because you have to, anything in a classical computer needs input and output. And so if your input's not random, your output's not going to be that random. So you have to sometimes cook up the input. Whereas in a quantum computer, you don't need input. You just generate stuff. So uh, unsupervised learning is an area that um, we believe there's um, a lot of advantage on quantum computers.
0: I also read another quote that I thought was kind of interesting. Dr. Ian McAndrew said, quote, we are currently at the start of a second quantum revolution. The first quantum revolution gave us new rules that govern physical reality. The second quantum revolution will take these rules and use them to develop new technologies and offer the next level of opportunities. So the work that you're doing right now seems to be part of this second quantum revolution in new technology, not in the physical world, but in the sort of computer science world. What would you say are some of those next level opportunities that you've been seeing in your work at Zapata? Yeah,
1: that's a great quote. Definitely we're close to a revolution. And it's basically a lot of work is theoretical. Like whenever we have this size of quantum computers, we'll be able to do this. We'll be able to do that. We're starting to see things that are good right now on the small devices, right? On the, the devices. And uh, we're starting to see some things that can be done better in those, or at least competitive with classical computers. But yeah, the revolution is, I think it's two things that happen, right? One is in the algorithms that we get, that they get better and better, especially in machine learning. And the other one is when the hardware gets better and we're able to build quantum computers of a certain number of qubits, then all of a sudden, all this theoretical work is going to become practical. So all of a sudden, all these things that we know we can do with given this computer, Boom, we'll be able to do them. So it's it's gonna be huge because just just a lot of things can be done much faster. So many bottlenecks in classical computer that that can be fixed that it will be very exciting times.
0: You mentioned that there are still some physical boundaries to getting quantum computers to this practical level of working (laughs) on these things that are still very theoretical. So what are some of those physical boundaries and what's being done to push those?
1: It's very hard to make quantum computers. You have to cool these things down to almost zero Kelvin, which is minus 273 Celsius, which is kind of the absolute zero. So you cannot go any colder than zero Kelvin because atoms just wouldn't move. And you need to go close to that in order to be able to have quantum computers, because there's just a lot of interference from the environment, right? Like if I'm playing with a tiny <laughs> electron or something, like the environment just interferes with it and, and observes, kind of observes things, right? Yeah. They have to be very, very isolated. Actually, a big bottleneck that happens is, you know, when something happens in the quantum realm to actually measure it and take it outside, like to actually even fit the cables, the physical cables there. To be able to transfer this to a classical computer is is very hard. Uh, And another thing that happens is that you need a lot of error correction. So because there's so much interference, then you don't fully 100% trust what comes out. And so you need to do it a few times. And so you need to run it, run things. I have a lot of redundancy in order to trust things, which also happens in big classical computers. You need to send your data twice or things like that because you just know what you know, a server catches fire or something. <laughs> so this happens a lot in quantum computers. And so you need to run a small calculation with some number of qubits. You you actually need a lot more because you need to do error correction. So that means that the computer needs to be some number of times bigger than what you actually would need it to have a trustable answer. So two things happen, right? In the algorithm side, you, you try to do algorithms that do good error correction, but but also on the hardware side. So yeah, there's just work happening in every in every aspect.
0: Well, I'm very excited to see where that goes. I feel like we are true to our slogan here that we're pushing the bounds into the future with quantum computing. I wanna uh, move the conversation a little bit towards a different track. So you spend have spent a lot of your career educating. And we actually first became connected through Manning, the publisher of your book, Grokking Machine Learning. And I think this book is really special because you explain machine learning from both a practical and conceptual perspective. And I can't remember where I read this, but you said, don't wait until you know all the math and computer science to do data science. And I feel like this book is really written for experts and novices alike. I read it as a novice and really appreciated how you broke down these sort of complex math concepts or math into concepts that I could understand. And then a friend of mine who's a machine learning engineer, he loved the practical exercises and how I guess both of us liked the kind of progression in the book that it got started with really the basics and you used a lot of metaphor. And then you added in exercises and more and more math where I started to shrink away a little bit. But I want to talk about your approach to writing this book and how you devised a way to bring along such a diverse set of readers.
1: Yeah, thank you. My approach to writing the book is the same as approach I have to teaching, which is also the approach I have to learning, which is slow i i I have no choice <laughs> about this actually i the way I learn is slow, especially things that are technical. I need to explain them to myself using an analogy that is very simple and if if I can't find it i don't understand it so for example, in classes, I take a long time i have to you know especially in math or things like that i I have to look at a small example for me to understand and and my peers are not like that my my people who study with me or my research colleagues and stuff. They can think of something high level. They understand it high level and they work with it in high level and they never bring it down. I absolutely have to bring it down. Otherwise I I don't understand it. And so that's sort of how I have things in my head. I When I first saw a neural network, I made no sense. <laughs> I had to look at the little one with two nodes and draw it in a line and have the lines cross and see where the predictions were. And so what is on the book is how I understand every single algorithm. And I try to remove the math because it doesn't speak to me that much. And so, for example, if I say in machine learning, they use a lot of derivatives and that's okay to do math, but I still need to understand it. And sometimes you can explain that there is like moving a small amount towards your answer. And so if you look at what's happening, probabilities, for example, people do a lot of math with probabilities, I always try to bring it down to, I have hundred cases and 75 are good. So 75 divided by a hundred. And if there's a conditional, then I just, this hundred becomes 80. I always try to have probabilities as like something divided by something else. And you can always bring it up. You can always work out the formulas or almost always to get the, the probability being obviously these number of solutions divided by the total. And just with everything, I, I try to do that. And then The math is required, but not the formulas, because to me, they're not the same thing. To most many people, experts, they say math and they mean a board full of formulas. And there's a lot more to that. I mean, there's math is concepts. Math is the way we understand them colloquially. The abstraction is just a language, but the math is is conceptual thoughts. It's geometric thoughts. It's uh, mental pictures of things. It's examples. And so I try to explain everything like that. And um, yeah, you can normally bring the, the level of, I mean, I think I try to explain it with, with sums and multiplication <laughs> and division. That's that's what I, it, and drawings. And it covers most of the algorithms in supervised learning. So neural networks, ensemble methods and everything. And then I just also throw in a few chapters of how to do machine learning. So like, how would you do in practice to make this better? Because the algorithms alone are not it. You need to, know how to tweak them, know how to measure them, see how they work. And it's always with examples. And then there's also code. So I have code for the readers to practice. And some of this is using packages because you're not going to code everything from scratch. But we do code a bunch of things from scratch in the beginning of the book because I feel like at least the simple algorithms is nice to code them once and see how they work. So you always just kind of, every time you use it, you know what you did. Hmm.
0: What sort of reception has the book had so far?
1: It's been good. I get a lot of messages and I get uh a lot of good reception because I think the reason I wrote it is because I've looked a lot in the literature and that approach is not there. There's great approaches, but that one particular not there. There's always the formulas come first. That's what I always see in books that is like this is a neural network, a formula. And I'm just like, and so I try to make the formulas come last. So I get very often this and it makes me very happy if people saying, Oh, I never Like, I never thought I was going to understand this and you empowered me. Like, and now I understand it. So I'm brave to go and do it. So I, to me, that's the most amazing response I can get to any material that I give.
0: Well, you've built up quite a following. You have a YouTube channel as well, Serrano Academy, which has over 85,000 subscribers and over 4 million views of your videos. I have watched quite a few of them. And yeah, they have exactly what you were just describing. Like I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about the video that I watched recently on linear regression. When people talked about or even said that word, I would just sort of tense up and think, oh, that's on a level of math that is beyond what I can conceptualize. And then you have this great video where you talk about housing prices and you have, you know, three little houses a small house, a medium house, a large house, and then, you know, what the prices are. And just having those visuals there, I could follow along the whole way and then. Again, in a way that the formula was never really introduced, but I could see, okay, this is a way where you can start to figure out, you know, what would that medium house be priced at? And so I feel like this area of research, artificial intelligence, machine learning, is starting to become such a huge part of our lives. and has huge impact on things like, you know, what your house price is. What your house price is, that's something that affects anybody who wants to buy a home. So, and algorithms are starting to determine those prices a lot more than an individual is, right? Because there's all this data that goes into it. And so it's so important for not only technicians, but everyday people to understand what is the concept that sits behind these choices or these decisions that are being made that feel sort of foreign? And how can I begin to understand them? And, you know, if those decisions aren't that good, then I have some agency to change the way that those are decided.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I like that you bring it up because linear regression is a great example because I think everybody does linear regression in their head at some point. Let's continue with house prices. If I see that a house is worth 100 and the same house with one extra bathroom is 120, and then with two extra bathrooms is 140, then you just did use that the bathroom adds 20 to the house, right? Mm-hmm. And if you do the same thing with a room, you may realize every room adds 50 to the house. That's linear regression. The fact that it's linear means we're just adding, we're not multiplying anything. You're never multiplying the number of bedrooms times the number of bathrooms. If you're not doing that, you're just adding things. That's what the word linear means. And so we do that a lot. We start trying to break down the prices and trying to figure out, you know, how much is the base price? How much is each bathroom? How much is each bedroom? How much is if this and that? And then we can deduce how much would this house get priced? And we say, oh, it's probably 500 because it has this and, and that and that and that. And we deduce it from data. So we are doing linear regression in our heads all the time. And so what happens is if we make the computer do it itself, then... That's a machine learning algorithm. And actually most machine learning algorithms, we do them on their heads all the time. Decision trees are also, we do them in our heads and most things. So if we explain them like that, like an example that you would do yourself, I think anyone can understand it.
0: Yeah. So definitely, definitely check out the YouTube channel if uh, linear regression or any of those other terms seem a little scary. This is a great place to check it out. Your YouTube channel is also bilingual, so it includes um, at least a mini course on machine learning in Spanish. Why did you decide to do a class in Spanish?
1: It's my first language, and I always wanted to do it in Spanish as well. I find that for learning, many people speak English, but for learning, it's a double challenge, right? If you don't speak English that well and you want to learn something else, and you have the challenge of the of what you're learning plus the challenge of English, then I found that. At least to me, that's sometimes harder. And so I started making the videos in Spanish, uh, but it's funny to me, it's hard to teach in Spanish, even though I speak Spanish, as if for first language, but the terms are hard and I, and everything I do in machine learning is always in English. So to me, it's hard, it's hard to speak math or machine learning in, in Spanish, but I've enjoyed it a lot because, you know, it reaches people that in Spanish speaking countries that maybe wouldn't have that opportunity because there's not that much material in, in Spanish. I've had a great reception there.
0: That's great. So you've had to look up some terms in Spanish that you're very comfortable with in English to teach the class?
1: Exactly. Some of them I have no idea. And sometimes it's not consistent. Sometimes some country calls it this, some, some people here call it that, and I have to sort of make a decision. <laughs>
0: oh, that's so yeah. interesting. Right. Yeah. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. I also saw that in your volunteer experience that you were the education chair for Latinx and AI. Talk to me about your experience with that. And again, like educating within Spanish and Latin American culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a great experience. I'm not, uh, that was a few years ago. It's been sort of rotated, Mm -hmm. but there's this group that started called Latinx and AI started by Laura Montoya in, in San Francisco, who's very active in that. And so, yeah, she reached out to the community and she had, uh, sort of a, a committee that was like a research chair and an education chair and everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we did many seminars and talks and organized events. And the idea is to sort of bring everybody in the Spanish speaking community to have, a a place of interest in, in machine learning. And then we actually organized, uh, seminars in, in Europe and, uh, ICML and ICLR and like the big conferences, we had, um, like a special session
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was great. There were many, you know, it's, it's, it's great to connect because we would go to the professors and the sort of role models and, and they would come and give seminars and there were projects that people did in their own countries and they would come and pre- present them and posters. So it was, it was a great place to open up to that American community. So it's very rewarding. I'm not part of it the committee anymore, but I still help with you know with, with talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these diversity groups are great. But Black in AI, for example, has done such a great job, mm-hmm. and uh, we try to do that and try to mimic you know see what they do and be like oh let, you know this worked so well and let's let's try to have. That <laughs> I think it's great because it adds every one of these communities add, adds diversity. To the field, uh, which is is much needed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will probably ask you afterwards, but you know, anybody listening, if you're part of one of these groups, Black and AI or Latinx and AI, we would love to have you on the show because I think diversity of you know all different types of diversity, so not just uh, background or ethnicity, but perspective, I think, is so important to creating the best products, the best ideas, because you know, different perspectives bring different perspectives. You know, you you don't even know what you're missing if you don't have different perspectives in there.
1: Yeah, especially when you're training AI, right? Because you want to sort of make computers think and act like humans. And that's not one gender. Right. You don't want them to act like humans of one gender and one race and one mentality and one country. You want them to think think like all humans. So you do need all the perspectives.
0: Yeah. And we almost want to have them think better than any one of us humans does. We all have our blind spots. We all have our biases that can get magnified really quickly in sometimes shocking and even shameful ways. And so the way you know, we hold up a different standard for artificial intelligence than even maybe an individual because it it impacts so many different types of lives. Exactly. Yeah. So you've had a super fascinating career as a tech leader, educator, sort of evangelist. Um, what are your core interests and what drives you personally?
1: I feel like I need two things to align. It's sort of the local, the small one, which is I need to enjoy what I do, which is it has to feel like, like something fun, right? Like if you enjoy doing crossword puzzles, that's how it should feel. So that I want everything I do to feel like that. And the other one is I want um the world that I want to live in. I want to work towards that. So I want to be able to be building the world that I want. And so when those two things align, then you hit jackpot, right? That means that's your passion. So to me, I like many things, but I like learning. Learning is something very important. I want to learn something every day. And teaching is also very important, and that's how I learn. So I really enjoy learning new things and communicating them to the world. And I find that educating the world is that's the world that I want to live in, a world in which everybody has access to education, to all of it, and to high quality, right? No matter where you live, what age you are, how much money do you have, uh, what style do you learn, how how do you... just Just everything, I think everybody should have that. Access not only because it's good for them, but it's also because it's good for all of us. Because if we give everybody the opportunity to shine, then they will shine and then we'll have a much better world. And so when those two things align, that's why I'm I'm always in in some way of another teaching. And that's why I'm always in some way or another learning something new. I, I never want to plateau and stop learning. So as long as I have that, the, the teaching and the learning, then I'm I'm happy.
0: Great. Okay, so if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, uh what does the world look like and have the robots taken over?
1: Ooh, that's such a good question. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Sometimes I, <laughs> I may trust the robots more than the humans. Oh, really? <laughs> I hope that I hope that this world no, don't quote me on that. I hope that the world we are has uh, not destroyed the environment because we're on our way to that. So if I'm writing an optimistic one, I would say that we figured out how to stop destroying the environment. We figured out scientifically how to fix it and also how to convince each other to, to treat our planet better. So that's something that I would put and... um Yeah, I mean, I think socially every generation gets rid of a few blind spots slowly, right? I think slowly getting rid of the biases we have with respect to race and gender. And we're not there yet. We're not fully there. But, you know, every generation just goes a little further. So I would say that hopefully in 2041, we have got rid of a few of, of, of biases that are affecting us right now as as a society I want to see an, an optimistic light and say there's more maybe world peace because we're not you know hate each other <laughs> like that and I feel like like evolving socially would would be way more than than evolving technologically
0: mm.
1: but um, I also if we do it properly then I also imagine technology evolving in many ways will have If we have a quantum computers, we'll be able to do a lot more things. For example, if we manage to combine education and technology in the proper way that manages to give everybody a, a sort of a shot at at personalized education to me, that would be an amazing, amazing advancement. Right. So that's how I would imagine.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well. I think that you're already a part of that vision of individualized, personalized education. I want to wrap up with uh, some calls to action. How can people reach out, learn more about you, find your awesome resources?
1: Thank you. The best place to go is serrano.academy. So if you go there, there's a link to the book. There's a discount code for the book to get it 40% off. There's uh, the YouTube channel and videos. Any talk that I give, I put it there. Every podcast I do, to put it there. So this will go there, obviously. That's the place, serrano.academy. And subscribe to the YouTube channel because I put stuff there pretty often. People can write to me from uh, through there. And many times people write and say, I'd like to see a video on this topic. And sometimes I plant the seed. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that topic's pretty cool. And then I do a video on that. <laughs> Twitter, people can follow me. I, I'm active on Twitter. Lewis likes math. Lewis underscore likes underscore math. Those are the main ways.
0: That's great. And uh, we'll put a link to your website in our show notes as well. So uh, people can go to find you there. Thank you so much for joining me today. What an awesome conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. And it's been really fun to talk to you and you raised some really good points. So, thanks.
0: Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.